I'll set the scene. As you sit in shuddering silence in the snowy semblance of seasonal solitude, seek succor in our search through a scintillating synthesis of Slavic, Siberian, and Semitic symbolism, separated spirits in structured sink, salivating, searing, satanic sadists and scorching schemes for supremacy, and surprisingly sympathetic sprites and slips of the shivering solstice. In this week's startling, strange, yet skilled spin on seasoned short stories, Spinning Silver. I'm Spencer, and welcome back for another episode of Mangum Reads. Joining me are BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? I'm very impressed. That was uh, scintillating. Um, I feel like you took the uh, the previous lack of, of intros and, and put them all into this one. It's more fun doing the intros on a book, because there's, there's more I can go into, and I also have more time to prep. <laughs> uh, well, I, for one, am, am just stunned, Spencer. Well, that's the purpose I, I, I aim to play. Um, Stunned into silence. So, Spencer, I do have a question for you. So, given that this is a, maybe more of a fairy tale than a really fantasy novel, and it does play on a lot of history and tropes and, and sort of well-trodden themes, and, and will honestly heavily uh, play on the various decisions that uh, the, the main characters make, would you say this is a, a tale of stark decisis? Ow. Yes, well said, bastard. <laughs> but, putting that that pain past me, um, BG, how about you introduce us briefly to what the book is about, and we will go into Sarah's always lovely segments we start these episodes off with. Um, yes, so um, I chose this book for uh, actually a couple of reasons. I had been reading some of Naomi Novik's uh, previous work with the Temeraire series, which is a little bit more uh, YA, but it's definitely a lot of fun. Um, and this novel came out fairly recently and was very well reviewed um, and sort of kept coming up in the uh, Google thinks that you should read this as well as quite a number of other things. Um, and so I had suggested it as sort of a fun uh, first novel of our year. And, and Sarah, you said you had um, actually already read this um, and, and enjoyed it. So Yeah, um, I, I had heard about it on um, oh a different book pod, pod, podcast. I have no idea which, which one I was listening to. Um, but it seemed like... A, delightful, got excellent reviews um, by said people, and then B, I am like immediately drawn to anything with textile-based words in the title, so um, <laughs> immediately also sat did down and read it. Win the Locust. Yes. So that does help. Yes. All right. Well, Sarah, you often start us off with both a drink and one-star reviews. You got, a, got something for I us this week? I have both of those things for you, Spencer. Um, I'm looking forward so to them. So for my drink... Um, we are in the middle of the day, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> some, somewhat unexpectedly. And this was a, a drink that was concocted somewhat last night when we were supposed to be recording and did not end up doing so when I had not left the house all day and was not planning on doing so to get ingredients for the drink. Um, <laughs> but I have come up with, for reasons that I, I think will become relatively clear in this episode, um, a drink called a steric sake teeny, which Ew. is, it's actually, it's good. Um, so it is, 
It is um, about a, an ounce and a half of um, some sake that we had been given when we went to a Japanese restaurant recently and brought a bo bottle home with us. So I have no information on that other than it was in my house. Um, and then another ounce of uh, another ounce of gin. BJ, I'm actually using the leftover um, brown mule gin from um, oh, New fun. Year's. Yeah, I mm -hmm. had one of the bottles left. And um, it has a little bit of dry vermouth in it, as well as um, a splash of lemon juice. And it is shaken, and it is um, a, a very pretty color, very wintry. And um, it's also very light and refreshing because it's actually March here in North Carolina. So <laughs> we're, hitting, we're hitting all of the things. What is the end flavor result of that? What does it taste um, like? It's honestly, it's a really just a very bright. It's got um, the little bit of um, kind of sweetness from the sake, but it it ends up just being a kind of light, refreshing flavor. It doesn't actually taste like all that much, hmm. which is no probably not great for the purposes of <laughs> this. Be careful. Yeah. Uh, well, it's three o'clock and you got plans we'll later. Um, but <laughs> I have other content for you all. Um, yeah, for, for people who didn't have such a wonderful drink to enjoy this book with, what were their opinions? Well, on? I did, yeah, I have I have some people who um, could probably use use a drink to <laughs> just chill the fuck down. Um, mm. So I think you know we were talking a little bit off off pod that we're probably going to have several editions of the outrageous one-star reviews for this book. We are back mm -hmm. in novel territory, which means that we have actual uh -huh. reviews uh -huh. related to the content that we're reading. So <laughs> this has been absolutely delightful. So I'm just doing a little, a little taste, a little teaser of upcoming content. Um, so I went to Amazon, um, which is where you get the, the most enlightened readings of of novels being produced in the world. Of course, of course. Um, so this is a one-star review by a user named Aviva. Uh, the title of her review is just, huh, with a question mark. I mean, she's re reading a winter novel and her name is Spring. This clearly isn't going to get along. <laughs> We've sussed out the problem. So, <clears throat> okay. On board with Miriam's take charge rescue of her family, working her Jewishness into the story I liked. On board somewhat less with the Steric's obsession with gold and her seeming ability to transmogrify silver into gold by means of basically having it smelted and worked into artistic jewelry and selling it. How then is she able to turn silver directly into gold once married to the wicked king of the Steric's? All by herself? Still reading. It's not a great read, but it is kind of fun. <laughs> we'll report more after finishing the book. Then we get an ellipses. Because this was a to-be-continued. Okay, finish the book. So, <laughs> sorry, it really felt Earth with a thud. The plot developed un unfollowable side paths. The characters became numerous and, by the way, not named at the start of their individual narrations. Couldn't know if, what, if you were reading the good guy or the villain or what or who. It all sort of gathered speed and rolled into a mixed, bo mixed up ball of plot lines. Shuddered to a standard issue romance novel, villain turns out to be a good guy who does the right thing after all ending, but totally without any romance whatsoever. Nope. 22 people found this helpful. <laughs> okay. Sure. Um, um, well, I mean, her descriptions are not necessarily inaccurate. I just disagree with I them. I would say that I would say that her interpretations 
of the things that she is describing leave something to be desired. Sure. This is like the the TV guide description of what you're about to watch. Yes. It's also unclear that she really understood the plot. Yeah. Yeah. And like who the bad guy is, maybe, and... And also, like... Sort of everything else. um, The the sort of slavish um, necessity of having a good guy and a villain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not ideal. Um, also not understanding that, like, we are, we are in a fairy tale world. So, oh, yeah. like, we're allowed to have a character who, when entering into a different realm, is able to be able to turn silver into gold without, like, an explanatory mechanism is probably yeah. fine. Ma- yeah. Once magic exists, a lot can be explained. Yeah. Um, so, one star. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, so, I have another one, which... Oh, please do. I just, so, and I quote, I, it just fascinates me. Anyway, so, so quote, but, <laughs> poor, poor. but wait, you might be saying, is two pages of poor queer rep out of an otherwise amazing 400-page book really enough for to merit such a low rating? Yes. Yes, goddammit, it is. See my status updates for details on the queer character I'm referring to. But here's some background. Novik's Temeraire series is notorious for a truly epic case of queer baiting made worse by her own interactions with fans. On top of that, Novik writes male male fanfic and posts it on AO3, but apparently doesn't see queer relationships as worthy of her published fiction. And it, uh, it okay. continues. <laughs> All right. Um. It, it's like, okay, so you think it's a great book, but there was apparently, and I guess i just completely missed it a mention of a queer character and that didn't go over so well the the czar's cousin oh, oh right okay, yes. yeah, yeah i do remember that that's pretty much it i mean okay i the book did not resonate with this person well because it did not have this yep it's, not much, not much you really can say about it is that okay if that is the marker that you need to enjoy books or there is not much here was, for you. Or maybe they would have been happy if it wasn't there at all. Yeah, I, I yeah, that kind of comment is a little bit on. <laughs> I mean, it's always going to be a bit of a catch twenty two, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I th- I think that we are. I am all for noticing and commenting and having thoughts about who is receiving repre- representation in certain types of texts and who is not. But this type of like, well, it wasn't there, therefore, or it was there in a token way. It just doesn't, I I don't understand what we're doing here. Yeah, I really Mm -hmm. wish that I could read their reviews on like other books that. Yeah. Yeah. And and see see what it is. Um, I have one more that was kind of amazing um, by, by a user named Julia, who who did not finish the bad, the dirty, and the underwhelming, um, was there the title, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and put trigger warnings on it, which I, I guess is fair, um, did not finish at 33%. Who would have guessed that? Not me, that's for sure. Um, and... Th- you know, did not finish a Goodreads Darling at the beginning of the year and not even feeling ashamed. Um, and basically, you know, talks about it, picked this book up in November um, and 
read 33% of it by January and just couldn't get into it, which is just like, well, that's fair because you read about a page a day (laughs) on average. It's really hard to get into a book when you're, or maybe more like a Kindle page a day. Um, And it's just like, all right, well, I, I don't know what book you read you know some of the major criticisms what is it was incredibly slow (laughs) so i don't know what book you read but okay yeah i'd not Um, slow i would say um what so did in this review did this person so this person started with the idea that there should have been trigger warnings is that right they they put on trigger warnings of abuse and alcoholism okay um I, what I was going to oh, ask oh, is, oh, did, they, did they clarify what trigger warnings they were talking yes, about yes. instead of just saying should have been those trigger are, warnings? Okay. Those are the ones. Okay. Um, and the other favorite thing that I have of this is there are three girls and they barely sound different from one another. And that was really confusing, apparently. Um, and it's only when they mentioned the names that she had any idea like who was who. We've heard this now a couple times. I really don't get uh-huh. that. I was actually going to compliment the author about making even just the style of writing make it pretty readily apparent who your narrator is going to be real yeah. quick. So how much Chardonnay do you think these people had before they started to read it? Harder to yeah. say. Um, un- unclear. Because I'm even looking at the 33% point in the book to see where she stopped, and it begins with, I like goats because I know what they will do. And I know with that sentence who this chapter is going to be from already. <laughs> Yeah, but um, it was it was a POV change, so it's confusing. Tough. Um, yeah, I oh the, the. <laughs> <sighs> as somebody who spent quite a number of years critiquing the written word. Oof. Um. So here, I mean, my other thing about this sort of like, and we talked about this. I think we talked about this when we were doing one-star reviews of Carmen Maria Machado, um, mm-hmm. because so many of them were about how like sad and depressing uh, many of her stories are, and like apparently these people only want to read like uplifting news articles and. <laughs> well, they should read cat pictures, please. Which because... perfect. There you are. But I. I guess my question is, did they come into this story not understanding that it was a retelling of a fairy tale? Mm-hmm. So it seems like a lot of people were like, okay, this is Rumpelstiltskin. And while I would say they're not 100% wrong, yeah, that they're like 85% wrong. They're like 85% wrong. And I would say that like it doesn't... So like that's troubling that we... that this is the only analysis that is coming out of the internet. Um, but also, like, fairy tales are really fucking dark. Yeah. Yeah. That should I, be I the think, trigger warning to begin with. I think that the what, what people have gotten is that fairy tales as retold by Disney are happy and fun and light as long as you don't pay attention to what's actually happening. And when everybody has sort of quit on fairy tales by the time that they were 8 to 10... They don't go, oh, hey, wait a minute, um, Sleeping Beauty, like, that, wait, that's not okay. Um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, wait a second, what's going on? Um, 
and a hundred percent don't get um cinderella and the stepsisters cutting off parts of their feet yeah so it's just a different yeah ariel's fins become legs in in ways that are not entirely represented in the disney version of this yeah, you, you can't really start with Disney and have that inform your impression of the fairy tale and then go straight from that to the original, because you're like, huh, this is a bit of a rape tale that I didn't think it was mm-hmm. going to be. Yeah, um, but that's that's where we are. So, BJ, you were saying in our last episode, it's kind of set up to this, that your your mother was insistent that we talk about this in terms of a fairy tale and not as in terms of like a fantasy novel or a sci-fi or anything like that, right? Yes, and I thought that was kind of funny because she, she was just like, Oh, it's a lot of fun. It's great. It's a fairy tale. It's not a fantasy novel. And I was like, yeah, that is fair. Yeah. Like it, it does have aspects of, of a fantasy novel, but it is it is very much a fairy tale. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. and I think she texted it to me and I, I should look it up. Um but but there is a bunch of like Russian, German, Yiddish stuff in there. Um and so when we get to there, I will definitely have that, maybe, hopefully, um, uh, prepared. Okay. Well, are we ready to... <laughs> yes. To dive Actually in. get into the book. For the next 26 minutes before our agreed stopping point. <laughs> well, I mean, let, let's just do a, a brief introduction to the setting mm-hmm. where the story takes place, because that, you know, kind of informs a little bit where we're going. You were so unhappy about that. Which which thoroughly amused me. I wasn't unhappy. It was just like you you were setting this up. You could have grounded this in the real world, but you chose not to. And you know that's fine. <laughs> um, but so not anytime unhappy, you say that's fine, that's Spencer. Fine. <laughs> There's a lot in this book that's being very much grounded in a kind of a medieval Russian kind of setting. This is very much happening in kind of the Jewish quarter and the Jewish regions that formed because. Things were a little bit more accepting there than they were anywhere else in Europe during the period. There's a lot of reference to boyars, the reference to czars. It's very much a grounding in a mix between Russian, Slavic, and Jewish culture throughout this. That makes for an interesting little synergy. Um, but our story takes place in one of those one of those somewhat protected regions where various Jewish groups have settled, in one particular small town. Where the very opening of the tale, and this is why I sympathize with people that said this is going to be just Rumpelstiltskin retold. It's because our first chapter just opens with, basically, here's the story of Rumpelstiltskin. Now let me explain why this, what the story actually kind of means. Or what it means for the character that is the stand-in for Rumpelstiltskin. Mm -hmm. Because from the perspective of our original main character, who we find out is named Miriam, she is in the, in the, kind of, well, her family's in the position of being the Rumpelstiltskin, of where they've set a deal, they've performed on the deal, and the other side becomes the hero in the story by thwarting them and declaring them to to be the villain. Where her family are a collection of moneylenders. Where I think it'd be fair to say her father is not well suited to this particular line of work. No, her father mm. really should have been an academic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He would have done very well as a professor. Maybe just a farmer working his own damn mm-hmm. field. But anything that involves him having to take things from others, even if it's terms that they agreed to and should honorably pay... He's not good on the confrontation side of things. Yeah. Or even the asking side of things. And so their family is sort of like eking out a living on the vague payments that he sometimes sort of gets. But for the most part, like it's a, hey, you owe me money. That's okay. We'll figure it out maybe next year or Maybe someday. never. 
Um, And what, well, a couple of things. Like, this is based on Miriam's mother's family has quite a bit of money, um, and her grandfather is a very successful money lender. Um, in, in, in one of the more, in one of the, some, I think it's like 40 miles yeah. away or something, but one of the larger towns mm-hmm. in the region, Viznia. Um, and what, what Miriam really quickly figures out in this situation is that not only is her father bad as a moneylender, but he is disastrous as a moneylender. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we continue going, going forward, like very quickly at the beginning of the novel, we figure out, and Miriam figures out that like, oh... The people in this town can't stand us and are also never going to pay us anything if they can get away with it. Right. With one of the reasons being, and it's not made immediately mm-hmm. apparent, though it's implied and becomes clear later, they are the only Jewish yes. family in town. Mm-hmm. And they came to this town with not an insignificant amount of mm-hmm. money. That apparently there was a large dowry attached when her father married her mother. Because the mother's family is pretty well to do. Mm-hmm. They're a pretty successful merchant family. And they came to town with a significant amount of money that he immediately loaned to everybody, that he gave it away almost immediately to the entire community. She even talks about the people living in the distant outskirts have borrowed money from her family. Mm -hmm. And he's almost made no effort to ever actually regularly collect upon it. That he he seems to operate under the assumption that his goal here was to support his neighbors. And that if they can afford to pay and when they want to pay, that's an extra perk. Rather than this being a binding contract between people that they are obliged and forced to repay. Yeah. And and so Which, this is playing on, on presumably a quite quite a number of tropes, to say the least. Um, sort of on the uh, Christians can't money lend and, and mm-hmm. Russia or the stand in sure. for Russia being like a heavily Christian nation. And so Jews end up taking that up and then are both very necessary but reviled for that. Mm-hmm. And so... Mm-hmm. Uh, Miriam's father is a ba- sort of trying to straddle those two lines of providing this very necessary service, but also trying to be sort of friendly with everybody and, and instead of being like, no, you have to pay me back because that's how lending money works, being like, well, you know, we'll figure it out. And, and if if he's nice enough to them, he will be more accepted and well-liked. Yeah. And, and, and to be fair to him, I mean, Particularly through Miriam's lens in the other part of this chapter, she sees it in the sense that her father is too nice or even weak of mm-hmm. a man. That he's not suited for this, that it's an example of his lack of character and lack of dedication to his family that he's let this happen. As good of a person as he is, as kind of a person as he is. Though as we find out later, there's also an element of a kind of under siege mentality that goes into both the father and the mother's response for why they're doing this. Or at least why they're not pushing it mm-hmm. more. That in some ways their position in society is, and it's a horrible thing to say, it is by the grace of those around them mm-hmm. that the only reason they're allowed to persist, that they're allowed to be tolerated, is to the degree that they don't stand out. They don't make waves. They don't challenge people mm-hmm. too much. Because being a minority within a minority, separated even from other members of their own faith and culture, it wouldn't take much for an angry people to kind of replay the Rumpelstiltskin story. It's a reason that it's the initial story of this chapter is that they have honored a contract. If they were any other person that had done this, assuming they were allowed by their faith to do so, it would, of course, be enforced. It would, they would, of course, have protections. But they're Jewish. And to the degree that the local community wants to turn against them, there's not much of a protection network they can really rely on. Even the local government they can't necessarily depend on, assuming it was even close by to go to. Yeah. Um, and where we kind of get at the beginning of this story is Miriam coming to the decision essentially by herself that that 
that reaction, while warranted for all of the reasons that you, that you've been discussing, Spencer, is no longer personally tenable for the family. The sure. winters are getting colder and they're getting longer. Uh, her mother is very sick. Um, there is no food in the house, uh, and something has to be done. Right. And I think this is also sort of bundled up with like her cousins getting married and basically her being at a point where she's burgeoning on adulthood and has yes. absolutely no prospect, partially mm-hmm. because of the position her family is in. Mm-hmm. Right. She doesn't have the luxury of kind of thinking about long-term risks, about how people will choose to judge or respond to what she does. At this point, they're reduced to a situation of where they're thinking about surviving till tomorrow, about whether her mother's going to die of consumption or whatever else she's suffering from in her bed mm-hmm. right there. All because her father's... I mean, at this point, while the mother is coughing out a lung and dying there before, the father is persuaded to go out and finally collect. Essentially, his arm wrung to even go out and do it even under those circumstances. And he comes back with like a handful of pennies. Mm-hmm. And Miriam looks at this, essentially grabs the ledger and decides, culture be damned, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this upon myself. And so, but I feel like the other side is like those pennies could last them for some amount of time, but mm-hmm. probably not for like the entire winter or whatever else. Right. So, like, I feel like her father did essentially what he needed to do, but isn't like succeeding. Right. In, in terms yeah. of like a businessman, but like presumably will be providing, like, if she had done nothing, he would have limped the family along for at least another season or whatever. Well, I think that the, that, the was, that was going to be my point, Spencer. I think you're okay. right. I think that the yeah. real impetus for Miriam to take matters into her own hands is the fact that, like, I, the impression I got is that her mom was, like, on her deathbed um, right. in a thing that, that with, with something that seemed to have been treatable if you had the money to get the medicine and, um, like, feed her appropriately to regain her mm-hmm. strength. Um and as we, as we see from a later chapter, I think from Wanda's chapter, where she talks about the costs of a doctor and the cost of a medicine before, this is a medieval setting. A doctor is expensive. Mm-hmm. Medicine is expensive. It's yeah. a matter of silver rather than pennies that would be able to help her get through the winter. And even, even as we see, once she starts to bring in revenue, it takes her mom months to recover enough to even really stand out of mm-hmm. bed. Yeah, um, She's at a very low point right now. And so there's a certain measure... I wouldn't even necessarily call it desperation. There seems to be an element of almost bruised pride that they've been reduced to this point, Miriam. That she she's doing this because they don't have another choice, but she's angry at the world that they've brought this upon her and forced them yes. to do it. And that seems to be part of the reason that she is actually um, resolution to do so or not. That that harnessing that hurt pride seems to be the reason that she is actually able to go out and be successful. Mm-hmm. And so in her initial chapters, I think we, there's two main things we get. We get a lot of this, well, a few things. We get a lot of this background. Mm-hmm. We get her initial efforts of being a moneylender. Well, she immediately, imminently proves exceptionally skilled at. She is very intelligent. She has kept very accurate records. She knows precisely what everyone can do. And she's imminently persuasive because she's not afraid to threaten. She's not afraid to set down the law, to bring the law through the, the connections to her grandfather. And so she pretty quickly gets people paying. She sets them to repayment plans because none of them can afford the monstrous amount of interest that they owe over years of not mm-hmm. paying. But she starts to bring in a measure of wealth. But throughout a lot of these early early descriptions of her business, we keep getting odd off mentions of the start. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to hear from you guys, 
The Starhacker just name-dropped every now and then for these first few chapters, with very little explanation of what they are, or even whether this is going to be in any way a fantasy or fable kind of novel. Earliest, earliest enough chapter or so, it seems like, okay, we're just in a medieval setting following, the, fo following a Jewish family. This is being, it's been an interesting bit of historical fiction. And every now and then the Starhacker referenced, but you almost could write them off as just being a certain degree of nobility or whatever else that have isolated certain roads that only they are allowed to mm -hmm. use. As long as we get more descriptions, you start to realize, oh no, these are ice demons that are among them, that ride among them and just steal gold and murder at their will. Yeah, I think it sort of depends on how, uh, to the letter, you take the descriptions that come early on. Mm -hmm. Because it, even in the first chapter, like if as long as you take the descriptions as reasonable descriptions as opposed to uh, an inflated description of like raiding or something mm -hmm. like that, there very much mm -hmm. is the ground froze solid that night with their passing and every day after a sharp city wind blew out of the forest carrying whirls of stinging snow. So uh, they are sure. associated with the coming of winter and sometimes the early coming of winter as well as monetary raids for gold. I'm going to say that the person whose one-star review I read um, did not take those descriptions literally and then refused to take the descriptions literally when they actually became literal. <laughs> and then and was, was mad when magic deny. happened. Gotcha. So when I was reading this interesting Russian history, <laughs> all of a they sudden there were elves. <laughs> yeah. I was reading this Russian history, and they had these really oddly poetic description of Viking raids, and I wasn't sure what to make of that. Is this cultural difference? Ah. So, unable to accept that this was a group they couldn't counter, they made them in this kind of demon myth. <laughs> I understand that where this is going. Hey, I'm joking, but I was kind of doing that for the first chapter until I was like, no, 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 this is not okay, I got it. No, I'm with you, I'm with you. I think the first chapter is acceptable, Spencer. I think that subsequent yeah. chapters is willful. <laughs> Yeah. At a certain point, there's demons coming to the door and leaving leaving silver to be turned into gold. It's like, oh, all right, yeah. yes, I'm with you now. If you started with Rebel Stilskin, then we're going yeah. that route. With you. Um, but So, yeah, well, so Miriam is, begins as reasonably successful in this. Um, she's very firm. She's very, uh, you know, I think rational about the whole thing. And she, she doesn't, she's not trying to stir up trouble with... Um, yeah her fellow village people. Um, that is not always the reaction that she actually gets, though. Yeah, and so I think in, in the first chapter, like, we, we start to get the uh, individual threads of the tapestry that's going to be the book, and they're completely innocuous at the time. Yes. And they sort of make sense. And mm -hmm. so uh, Miriam goes to this house, and basically there's this family where the mother has died and they can't really do anything to assuage their debt because the father just doesn't have anything essentially to his name but he has a couple of children that that sort of seem uh, that they're sort of accomplishing a little bit in the way of farming and so she basically says hey like well you're why don't you have your oldest daughter come work for us and that'll pay off your debt Right. This is, this is Gorik, I believe, is the name of that dad. Yes. Uh, who has borrowed six silver kopecks, an amount that he could never repay in his entire life. Yeah. Um, um, and, um, and clearly took, presumably, the child that he would most happily part with. Mm -hmm. 
um, probably the least likely to perform a lot of the heavier farm work that they sort of seem to vaguely do um, with the goats. Um, and also and someone that he has been starting to think about marrying off and also has been like, well, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Which I also found kind of interesting because um, a, a very stark contrast is he's looking for a bride price rather than having a dowry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he's viewing, he's essentially viewing her in the same light as a piggy mm-hmm. itself. That his, his idea, it's a product, it's a working creature that I can offer you to benefit you. And it's an interesting chapter, too, when she goes to meet with Gorik and discuss his debt, because he tries to put her off. But throughout all this conversation, she's looking around and she is seeing the abject poverty. Mm-hmm. And th- she having to repeat to herself that to be a moneylender, you have to be cruel. But you can see how much she's struggling with it. Because she knows they can't afford to pay. And the more I push them, they will probably die. And so in some ways... Her choosing Wanda to be a servant for her family is a, a quick thought on her part to find a way out of the moral conundrum, moral conundrum she's found herself in, mm-hmm. and how much she's still struggling with what's necessary to, for her to do to make this happen. She's adopted the mantle of being a moneylender. She's trying to harden her heart, if you will, to make this happen. But it's still a struggle for her, and she's really proud of herself and overjoyed that she can find in some ways an effective means out of this quandary by giving them a way of paying off their debts. Because she does that with people. Yes. She, we see no scene where she calls the law down on them, where she demands their property or anything else. With every person that she's dealing with, she's actively trying to find a way to work with them that they could realistically pay down her debts, or at least create a kind of repayment plan. Yeah. She's not... I'm- the cruel thing from Fable that people want to cast her in the role of. No, and I think we see that th- her make that decision for a couple of different reasons. One is, is as you sort of say, Spencer, that she is not herself willing to, or at least willing yet, to say, this. I need the money and this is it. But also, you know, they, she's living in a town where everybody is in poverty um, mm-hmm. to greater or lesser degree. You have to make these these kind of um, economic-based decisions to continue to try to capitalize on your father's investment. Mm-hmm. Um, or you're just going to starve people out. Yeah. It's it's one that... Um, or they're going to turn Miriam's on you, parents, sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's one that Miriam's parents, strong, well, particularly the mother, strongly disagree mm-hmm. with that Miriam's doing that. The mother essentially... What was the line that she says? Uh I she essentially attacks the father as being that you were the one that was supposed to put this coldness on yourself. You were the one that was supposed mm-hmm. to do this and not let it fall to her. Think what she's doing to herself by doing this. I didn't fully understand where what she was trying to say about when she, what she was trying to say at that time. Um, how did you guys interpret the mom's resistance to Miriam picking up this mantle as compared to the father? I, I think it was more, somewhat of a this is my baby girl and she should be sheltered from some of the harsh realities of the money lending work. Probably to a certain extent that the mother was up until like she got married and and then got a little bit more into adulthood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so being forced to be the brunt of both the money lending and therefore the... Uh, anti-semitism that's going to be rampant along with her dealings with the townspeople and being the the money lender in the town 
something that she would have wanted to shelter her daughter from for as long as possible. Do you think there was also a little bit of, um, like, women just don't do this as well? I wondered about that. Yeah, but... I, I think that there's some of that, especially like the actually going out and collecting part, mm-hmm. probably less less so the being part of the business, but basically being the strong arm. That mm-hmm. ma- that makes sense because it didn't seem necessarily like her mother was was as resistant to the like going to the market and engaging in the commerce with the stuff. You know, sometimes she she t- uh, collected goods in kind instead of. Um, actual money and then had to go sort of sell those in the market or whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. It seemed like she was less resistant to that idea, but I think you're right to the collection itself. Um, That takes on a kind of different valence. I think we can see that in her grandfather's reaction once he starts to find out about it. Because he's very much supportive that she's become a money lender. He very much complimentary of her. (laughs) Yeah, he he likes that he has essentially a young protege coming up who's very good at the Mm -hmm. job. But the first bit of advice he tells her is, you can't do collections anymore. Yeah. You have to hire a Gentile, have them do it. You can't be involved in that. That's the first thing he tells her, the first thing that she does when she gets back. But otherwise, no, very few people seem to respond very poorly to her being a businesswoman. If anything, it's viewed by the grandfather as being something that he can market her for when he's trying to propose that she uh, get married to mm-hmm. somebody. It gives her a better st- a standing in, the, in society. Yes. Or, or at least It essentially that. increases... Uh, I mean, to offer the comparison from the father trying to sell Wanda, I never would want to compare the situation Wanda is to what the grandfather and father view of Miriam, but it improves her market value. Mm-hmm. A little bit more than a week's worth of alcohol. <laughs> sure. But sh- should we go now into Wanda's home life? Yeah, I mean, that, that is the next chapter, and I thought it was a very... It was not a turn of perspective that I was expecting in mm-hmm. any any form, and... I also didn't expect how Wanda would view her new situation at all mm-hmm. when I read it. Yeah. No, me neither. This was one of the first moments where this book can... There were... This book surprised me more times than a lot of what we've read. About I had presumptions that were pretty quickly continually dashed. Mm-hmm. And this is one of them. I thought this was very much going to be Miriam's story and everybody else would serve as a secondary character. I wasn't expecting there to be different perspectives. But, like you said, BJ, once we go into it and see that Wanda's going to be an equally co-main character throughout much of this book, and then to find out that not only is she, the way Miriam presumed, uncomfortable, concerned, maybe even prejudiced in terms of working for Miriam, she is overjoyed at the prospect. Yes. Um, And what is the main seat of her, the main source of her joy? Not being at home, because home is the worst. Home is terrible. Uh, I, this is yeah. almost like Harry Potter abuse levels. Yeah. Or worse. Yeah. Um, so we very quickly learn out. So learn that we have um, Wanda and then she has two brothers, um, both mm-hmm. of whom are younger. Uh, and we learn more about them as we go on. Um, I don't remember them being particularly important in these early year chapters. Um, they're, they're, they're not particularly important to Wanda in these early right. chapters. She doesn't seem to have much in the way of emotional feeling yeah. for them. Um, and that, you know, some of that seems to be a little bit like the absolute abject poverty that they are living in. Um, mm-hmm. And probably also yeah. combined with like the, her, their mother died yeah. um, fairly early on. And so she's sort of been the de facto head of household because mm-hmm. their father is 
sober when he has to be and not happily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she offers the example of when the mother got sick, the father loaned six copics or borrowed six copics so as to uh, treat her, of which he spent two on a doctor and the other four on his alcohol. That's kind of his level of priorities here. Yeah. Um, so Wanda is going to start going to Miriam's house um, to help out for essentially half of the day every day, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and the, there's basically some what Miriam decides is a vaguely fair way of paying off uh, their debt, and so like half the half of the time she'll actually get paid, and half of the time she'll be working off the debt, um, and then in some something like six months or a year or whatever it yeah. is, she'll eventually pay off the debt. Um, yeah, uh, Wanda figures out pretty quickly that uh, she does not want her father to know that this debt is being paid off quite so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, because as right. soon as that and happens, she's either going to have to give him the money or he's going to, well, and, and, or he's going to uh, marry her off somewhere. Right, and that she's getting paid. Yes. So, so she's sort of uh, squirreling away the money that she has and probably buying, you know foolish things like food and or clothing um to survive the winter god forbid it's it's interesting because our initial impressions of her are probably the same as miriam's is that she's just kind of an ox that she's not particularly Mm -hmm. intelligent miriam's some very critical kind of comments on her she just views her as nothing more than a pack animal it's around but and while it's true that wanda's not educated i mean she even views the idea of mathematics as being a form of magic which i find very cute throughout the story (laughs) that she thinks that miriam is teaching her magic um She's quite adept, Mm -hmm. and one of the first things she decides to do is how to trick her father about this, is that she does the math in her own head about how long, essentially, she's going to be repaid, and kind of tries to work both sides of where it's like, okay, you know, take a couple years, whatever else, pay off, and then she combines that math to tell her father, oh yeah, it's going to take like five, six years to pay this off, and you know, I'm only working to pay off the debt, I'm not receiving anything Mm -hmm. else, nothing at all, I'm not burying anything under the white blood-sucking tree that's in our yard that's probably feeding off the bodies of my my mom and our, my various other dead siblings. <laughs> pay, pay no so, attention to this tree. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that the other side of, of Miriam, but sort of both Miriam and uh, Wanda's views of each other are, Miriam's probably like five feet tall if she stands on her tippy toes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm guessing Wanda's like much closer to six feet. Yeah. And like... So so I think that there is that aspect of it and also how Wanda's father portrays her mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like what she's been doing and basically running this far. Yes. Right. Some of that is also a degree of defense mechanism, I think, on Wanda's part of where her father doesn't have, no one has much of a high view of her because she's viewed as the only way she can protect herself by not being seen, mm-hmm. by not being the focus of attention, by showing up late at night when everyone's already to bed before coming home. Because otherwise, that's a guaranteed way to a beating, apparently, in this horrendous household she calls home. Um, but And I can't remember how exactly how we get there, but what we find out is that Wanda has a little bit of a head for the collections game. What? Yes, actually, yeah. Wanda does. She has, she has a surprisingly good memory. Um, she's pretty effective as an enforcer in terms of going out and collecting from people. And she doesn't ho- she doesn't hold much in the way of sympathy for her neighbors either, kind of similar to Miriam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that you know a lot of that is her 
father's interactions with her neighbors coupled with the fact that he's sort of trying to sell her off and so probably has had some less than ideal interactions with the male neighbors that aren't married um and Miriam is sort of very much taking Wanda under her wing in these first couple of chapters and just being like all right well you know you're gonna help out and and with my family and that means being part of the family business Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one thing I I mean it the main characters that the author puts before us are such are such interestingly done because they often follow very parallel paths or even mirroring storylines at times but they're all very distinctly portrayed and even comes into the writing style I mean for each chapter we see a different point of view, the writing style is drastically different because the thought processes of the characters are drastically mm-hmm. different. Wanda's is much more straightforward. It's much more... Even the descriptions are, are relatively simple, even the effort at uh, describing emotions. Like, her last description of how she feels, and I think it's a cute way of saying it, of when she finds out how many years it's going to be repaid, is she says, my heart was glad as birds. And it's a, you understand immediately what she's saying, but it's a very basic way of conveying that emotion. But that's kind of true throughout Wanda's, Wanda's chapters. They adjust slightly over time as she gets a little bit more worldly, mm-hmm. but the author does a very good job, even in how the characters think, of clearly indicating that these are separate people. As much as they may mirror each other, most of them they work together, these are distinct individuals. And I think it's a well-done way of doing it in the style of writing. I also find it quite interesting that this is... I think one of the first stories or books that we've read that most of it takes place in the thought processes of the characters that we have the point of view in the chapter. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there obviously is action that happens and, and interactions, but so much of it is what the characters are thinking and how they're dealing with the world. Right. There's no omniscient narrator here, really. It's all done through the first-person perspective throughout which can make it frustrating at times. We're eventually going to get to Wanda's younger brother, Steppen, which we've talked before about how difficult it is to convey the thought processes of children. Yeah. And I think the author does an accurate job of it, but just shows how utterly frustrating it can be to have a, a child as a main character. Yeah, yeah, I, and, yeah, I have things to say about that when we get there. <laughs> okay. I think there were uh, some other things that she was trying to convey, and I just didn't think that this was the uh, story to do it. And I could, I, I feel like there is probably a one-star review that we haven't read about the Stepan chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's quite a bit in the future, I believe. Yeah. Um, well, we are, we're a bit over our limit already. <laughs> Do we want to f- finish one last point and then call it quits until next week? Yeah, yeah I think so, we're so, almost to where we wanted to get anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially we, we, we're going to cut off before we actually really meet the, the Staric. Yes. Um, but so we do have, and we vaguely talked about it, but Miriam going to her grandparents, mm-hmm. um, and basically seeing what, uh, a very well-established money lender's house looks like and how things happen there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was very interesting cause it, it, it showed a lot of things. First of all, it, it showed sort of, I believe her mother recovers quite a bit, um, mm-hmm. due to her success but also um, it kind of shows where she is in relation to basically the rest of her family and people of her station and where would they would be at this point in life compared to where she is and how her grandfather feels about that. Um, and basically, presumably, if she were still in Visnia and, and 
basically an offshoot of her grandfather's business she'd probably be marrying some you know merchant or something like that and and whatever else but because of her life and she's basically taking over the role of the money lender she's definitely not on par with pretty much all of the other girls in her family mm-hmm. but her grandfather takes a shine to her and really right. is like okay you're my favorite granddaughter now and uh, we're going to spend a bunch of time together and I'm going to teach you how to do this as best I can. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that, to your point, BJ, that, like, you're my favorite granddaughter now. He only, he only takes an interest in her when she shows she has some acumen for this for this skill. But I think, it, I think in some ways earlier she was a bit sullied by her father when it came to her grandfather's yeah. opinion. Uh, that... The father was grandfather was clearly disappointed with what the father proved to be, at least as it came to a moneylender. And so to now see that his spawn has proven remarkable, remarkably adept. Um, and I mean, I, I like his response to it, where we see from the grandmother and from the mom a bit of resistance to the idea that you know, this is not fit for a girl to mm-hmm. do this. The grandfather's only response is just kind of wave his hand and say, gold doesn't know the hand that holds it. And just immediately goes into giving her advice about you need servants, you need a desk, you need somebody else to do your collections. Like you said, this is the immediate process of, this is the person I wanted to be able to talk with about this. Yeah. Glad you're finally here. And uh, and so the other side, I would say, Sarah, to like, you're my favorite now, is I would guess that they didn't go to Visnia like much. much. And, you know, yeah. maybe on holidays or something like that. But like, clearly, both her parents are kind of uncomfortable with their station as compared to mm-hmm. her, her grandfather's or, or her mother's father's. And... So my guess is like the contact that they've had is sort of just like general where a lot of the family and a lot of people would be there. And so the grandfather's interaction with his granddaughter would probably be very like, I love my granddaughter and, you know, I'm happy to play with her and whatever. But like, she's not a person like she's not a person that I interact with yet as an adult. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a little hard because we don't we don't get many interactions with we don't we don't get many views of the grandfather at all and so it's easy i think um in my in my reading to think like yeah he's he doesn't really seem super into most of his family anyway um (laughs) which he's not a warm person no i I like him he's an interesting character he's very skilled but he comes across as pretty cold um and unclear if that's that's just the vision that we get of him or or what. But he has taken a different different tack now that um, I have this vision, like cartoon like vision, of his eyes actually like focusing in on Miriam for like the first and, time you know, ever. Some gold, gold coins. Yeah. Who are you? Yeah. You know the the the, the uh, cash registers like spin around a yeah. couple of times. And it's like oh, hmm, you're I mean, interesting all of a sudden. <laughs> There, there is even an element of financial investment. Yes. Well, the first time she tells him that I want to be a money lender now, he gives her money to go out mm-hmm. and loan. Yeah. Says that there's some towns along your way back home that have never been lended to. Hit them while you go. Um, but I think it's notable in terms... One of the first memories she ever says that she has about going to her grandfather's house is walking into a parlor and finding her mom in her grandmother's arms just holding each other both crying. It's one of the only like memories descriptions we have. Everything else is kind of a blur of color and people dressed a lot better than she is. But that one stuck out to me is that there wasn't much of an interaction in what there was with just kind of melancholy. Mm-hmm. Um, is this point we actually start running into the Staric for the first time when she's actually riding back from her grandfather when they get kind of ambushed in that sleigh? Yep, I think so. 
Is it or is it at at the house? When, there's a, not when not when the driver tries to kill them, but there's a moment of when they're riding back of where suddenly they just everything gets incredibly cold. The Staryak Road's really close to them. They have to throw blankets at themselves and basically just hide for a second. Oh, that and yeah. they don't actually have an interaction with them. Yeah, that right. that might be no, true. No, they just okay. hear they just hear horses going yeah, by. Yeah. We sort of get the first touch, but essentially, like we get to the point where Miriam's doing really well as yeah. a money lender and. Basically, just a businesswoman, yeah. like turning whatever and uh, turning whatever Wanda collects into money and to to mm-hmm. continue the business. And Wanda becoming more and more the uh, not quite a partner, but like a very trusted uh, employee mm-hmm. in terms of like being very important to both the business and her family in general, and being well cared for, well fed. She eats with them and. Uh, is essentially well respected as a as an employee and you know semi part of their family yeah. as she's mm-hmm. taken in under both Miriam's wing as well as her parents uh, and uh, semi part of the family. Yes, mm-hmm. and that's when uh, footsteps start showing up in the snow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the last point out too. I like it that it's her grandfather's advice as well that you need to pay her. Mm-hmm. Any of your servants, you need to pay them. They need to feel that they are part of your business and equal co-partners in your wealth, even if they really aren't. But it's not enough that you're paying out of debt. They need physical coin in their hands, and then they will understand and value you with respect to that amount. That's very good advice that she receives mm-hmm. early. And more than she knows, it makes Wanda forever loyal to her. Yeah. And a few other people, as we will get to in our later episodes. Yep. But if, they, if our various listeners are in desperate need of content before we come back to them with a new episode... BJ, where can they go for it? Um, there's a surprising amount of content on mangumtalks.com. Um, that includes our own Pottercast within a podcast, uh, Pottering Around, where we're doing a chapter-by-chapter chapter read of Harry Potter, and we are a little bit past midway in the separate second book, which I do remember this time is the Chamber of Secrets. Um, we also have Whiskey on the Weekend, Mangum Talks TV, and some other podcasts which happen every so often, Mangum Laughs, and I have heard inklings of Mangum Hoops actually being a thing, but I'm less sure of that. Um, And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, click the contact us at the upper right-hand corner of MangumTalks.com, and we're always happy to hear those and and look at the comments. All right. All right, y'all. Well, this, this is a delightful book for us to talk about, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you next week. Sounds good. Bye, y'all.